This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we dig deeper into the debate over Cuba. Will historic diplomatic moves founder on the shoals of domestic politics in the U.S.? More from our special focus on Cuba in 2015. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Argentina's president surprised her country this week. In a televised address, she called for the reform and dissolution of the country's spy agency. President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner said the spy agency, called the Intelligence Secretariat, was involved in the controversial death of Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman. The theme of impunity is one of the stigmas that has stayed with us in our democracy since 1983, since the end of the dictatorship. But combating impunity is one of the fundamental pillars of our government. Nisman was buried this week. He had been investigating the bombing of a Jewish community center in the mid-1990s. He had been preparing formal charges against the president for covering up Iran's involvement in that bombing when he was killed. Mexico's attorney general insists 43 missing students are dead and has closed the case on their search. The students went missing this fall after authorities in the Mexican state of Guerrero took them into custody after a protest. Authorities were able to identify the remains of one student found in a trash dump from DNA tests on bone fragments. But the remains of the others were never found. The attorney general says that police turned the students over to a drug gang who killed them, burned their bodies, and put their ashes in a river. Parents of the missing students and thousands of their supporters marched in protest this week in Mexico City. They claim the government is covering up the involvement of the Mexican army and federal officials in the case. Mexican authorities are holding 90 people who will face charges for their involvement in the killings. The Argentine forensic anthropology team, which is conducting an independent investigation, has cast doubt on some of the government's explanation of the crime. Cuba's president, Raúl Castro, renewed Cuba's demand this week that the United States return land it uses for its naval base at Guantanamo Bay. So far, the U.S. has rejected the demand as the countries begin their negotiations to normalize diplomatic relations. Former dictator Fidel Castro, Raul's brother, broke his silence on the diplomatic developments this week. Fidel said he hoped for a peaceful end to the tensions between the countries, but that he didn't trust the politics of the U.S. would allow for normalized relations. We'll have more on these diplomatic and political changes with Cuba later on this program. The presidents of Nicaragua and Costa Rica got into a heated exchange this week, and it was all about Puerto Rican independence. The verbal spat came during sessions at the fourth summit of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, a group that goes by the acronym CELAC. Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, ceded his time during the ceremonies to allow an activist campaigning for Puerto Rican independence to speak. Ruben Berrios of the Puerto Rican Independence Party called for the United States to allow Puerto Rico to become independent. The host of the summit, President Luis Guillermo Solis of Costa Rica, 
complained that Ortega's stunt went against the agreed-upon speaking arrangements. CELAC is a group made up of all independent countries in the Western Hemisphere except Canada and the U.S. Miss Universe is Colombia! The Miss Universe pageant crowned Paulina Vega of Barranquilla, Colombia as its new winner this week. Gabriela Isler of Venezuela passed her crown to Vega. Isler was last year's winner. Vega beat contestants from 87 other countries who gathered in Miami for the contest. Miss USA, Nia Sanchez, came in second in the competition. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. And now, back to our special focus on Cuba. A bipartisan group of senators introduced legislation this week that would end all official travel restrictions on U.S. citizens who wish to go to Cuba. Earlier this month, the Obama administration used executive power to adjust some restrictions, making it easier for tourists and ending a ban on tourists bringing back rum or cigars from the island. Also this week, news came from the island about Cuban officials actively looking the other way and allowing an informal and underground intranet with thousands of online users to spread around Havana. Change regarding Cuba, the theme of our in-depth discussion with Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, a discussion that we began earlier this month. Here's the second part of that interview, recorded via Skype from Washington, D.C. One of the things that will be very interesting is whether uh, vague provisions in the agreement between the two presidents to facilitate the opening up of Internet and communications uh, in Cuba, uh, first, whether they will happen, Secondly, at what pace and within what constraints? And thirdly, what impact they will have on the government's ability uh, to constrain the flow of communication in Cuba? Um, and that's politically very, uh, very significant, the degree to which they both seek to and are able to um, constrain the flow of information about matters politic and, 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 and beyond. Um, the Cuban political system is one in which um, few observers would characterize um, judicial proceedings regarding political dissent as free or fair or balanced or transparent, long, etc. It's a dictatorship. I don't expect that to change for the foreseeable future. Um, now, is that a capitulation? Uh, I think that what that is is an acceptance of reality. Uh, not a capitulation. And it is the case that the Cubans did not give up very much. Um, the policy that needed to change was the American policy. And in effect, the Obama administration unilaterally acknowledged that the policy was nonsensical, uh, was a source of embarrassment throughout the hemisphere. Governments throughout Latin America uh, were not willing to attend the presidential summit in Panama coming up in April if, the, if Cuba were not in attendance. And for Cuba to be in attendance uh, was um, itself something that required the United States to unilaterally back off absolutist positions that it had, had assumed for a very long time. What the Obama administration did was to recognize reality and unilaterally um, propose a different course of action regarding U.S. relations with Cuba. Um, in that sense, yes, the Americans flinched. 
and it was about time. They should have done it decades ago. They could have had this deal at any moment during the Obama administration, and now the administration um, found the courage uh, to come forward and take a step that was long overdue. Some would say that this came at the most politically convenient time for the administration because no more re-election, no more congressional campaigning for this particular president. He's in his last two years. But does this actually change the Obama legacy toward Latin America that we would have had a different legacy if he had not moved forward and presented this olive branch to the Cubans? It's absolutely a game changer regarding how history will remember uh, this administration's relations with Latin America. And Obama will now be able to go to the Panama summit in April, not um, to be scolded as yet one more president who doesn't listen to the region, one more president who attributes to the United States the authority to dictate um, the domestic politics of given countries in the region and to ignore the views of governments in the region, democratic and otherwise, um, in, instead to um, go to the presidential summit and be treated like somebody who finally respects Latin American views. It's a game changer. And it's quite interesting to see that, in fact, over the last couple weeks, um, with the move on immigration, with the move on Cuba, uh, the president's popularity has ticked up. There's a sense that he's actually doing something. Um, and it might very well be that a bit more of his base would have turned out to vote in the midterms. So the notion that somehow uh, not wanting to rock the boat prior to the midterms was constraining them, I just don't buy it. Uh, and if it's the case, then I think it's really um, a signal of uh, remarkably shallow political calculations in the White House. I mean, Rubio and Menendez were going to scream. Everybody knew it. Um, and they'd scream now, they'd scream last year, they'll scream next year. Um, I don't see how the electoral calendar changed that. They started forward on immigration in July and then pulled way back. Um, yeah, and they did that because uh, Udall in Colorado and Landro in Louisiana and Pryor in um, Arkansas and Braley in Iowa said, you got to do this for me, I'm going to pay a price. Uh, if and you, most of them lost anyway. They lost anyway, and they had low turnouts. And in Colorado, the Latinos didn't turn out. The fact of the matter is, my calculations are, even if the Latinos had turned out, they'd have lost those seats, whatever. But I understand, at least, the calculation that, okay, these senators in supposedly tight races say, don't move on the immigration thing, it'll burn me. I don't know any contest in the country where that's the case around the Cuba case. You have talked about modest economic changes that will come forward from this beside the historic game change of this particular shift in policy. Um, others have talked about um, lots of particular changes. Are, are we going to be uh, sitting in the stands of Major League Baseball in the next two, three years watching uh, Cuban pitcher after Cuban pitcher while smoking Cuban cigars? Is that the future of this particular relationship, or are there other changes that you would talk about? Well, there will be uh, exports of Cuban cigars, and there will be um, 
it will be easier for Cuban baseball players, I suspect, to um, move from Cuba to the major leagues. I don't expect people to be smoking those cigars in the stands in American stadiums, um, though they may be able to go to Cuba and watch a game there and be allowed to smoke cigars in the Cuban stadium. Um, I think the more important economic ramifications of these changes have to do, first of all, with the likelihood that remittances from Cuban-Americans um, will increase substantially, um, the likelihood that the numbers of Americans visiting Cuba uh, will continue the existing upward trajectory and, in fact, that that number will accelerate, even though it would require um, a congressional vote to abolish the embargo in order for tourism travel to be allowed uh, without constraint. But there will be more Americans able to travel to and spend money in Cuba. Uh, there will likely be expanded trade in a number of important domains. Most important from my perspective is the possibility of American firms selling goods to the emerging private and cooperative sectors in Cuba. Uh, which have been hamstrung by the a variety of difficulties that they face in securing inputs for their enterprises. Um, and the administration will be able, through um, reinterpretations, rewriting of existing regulations, to facilitate the flow of goods and services uh, to the emerging private and cooperative sector in Cuba. And those sectors are vital um, for the success of the economic reforms that Raul Castro's government has put forth and that, while substantial, have to date not been as successful as the government had hoped. And there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them has been the difficulty in accessing inputs that are likely to flow more freely, though not entirely freely, as a result of these reforms. And finally, I think something that is especially important is that through uh, revised regulations and through what I anticipate will be an imminent uh, removal of Cuba from the list of state sponsors of terrorism, um, again, an anachronism that was just an embarrassment uh, for the United States throughout the region at a time when the Cubans are facilitating the peace process in Colombia, for example, um, that the removal of Cuba from the list of state sponsors of terrorism will open up um, a number of bottlenecks regarding Cuba's ability to engage the international banking system. And so financial transactions and um, banking transactions will be rendered much more uh, simple, less cumbersome, uh, by the reforms that are going to be implemented during the coming months. And that will have real economic significance uh, for Cuba. Down the road, we'll have to see um, how things play out in terms of imports from Cuba, including imports that are channeled through the soon-to-be-completed um, container port in Mariel, um, which the Cubans with investors from Brazil and Singapore have um, seen and continue to see as a pillar of uh, what they hope will be a more prosperous economy during the coming years. 
Um, Cuba would like to become a major logistics center distributing goods that come through the Panama Canal uh, throughout the Caribbean um, on to Europe and ideally to the United States. And if it becomes possible for um, um, shipping to um, flow freely from Mariel to U.S. ports and for companies operating in a special free trade zone that the Cubans are setting up around the port to um, export to the United States goods that they assemble um, in that free trade zone, um, then this also may prove to be quite the boon uh, to the Cuban economy. At this point, it's premature to speculate as to um, how great a boom, uh, but there certainly is potential there uh, for significant impacts on the Cuban economy at a time when the Cuban economy is in desperate need of stimulus. Thank you so much. Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, our guest today again on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Rick. Coming up, the U.S. may be changing some of its policies, but its controversial democracy promotion programs still are an issue when it comes to Cuba. We'll discuss USAID's role. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now our discussion regarding the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and its various programs to change Cuba. Of course, the most well-known program involving USAID and Cuba was one involving Alan Gross. The U.S. agency asked Gross to connect Cuba's Jewish community to the Internet. Cuban authorities caught Gross with sophisticated electronics gear, charged him with crimes against the state, and he was detained for more than five years before a prisoner swap last month that brought him home. This program has also discussed Sunzuneo, an attempt by USAID to start a Cuban social media service to spark political change. That program was disconnected and is regarded as a failure. As discussed earlier this month, USAID continues to recruit contractors to help with its democracy promotion programs in Cuba. One of those programs faced another round of criticism last month when the Associated Press revealed USAID had secretly funded and supported Cuban rap groups through a contracting agency called Creative Associates. Creative Associates used Serbian contractors and shell corporations in Panama to hide its connections to USAID. We talked to Sujatha Fernandez at Queens College, City University of New York, about USAID and Cuban rappers. Fernandez is the author of several books, including Cuba Represent and her latest, Close to the Edge, In Search of the Global Hip-Hop Generation. Here are excerpts from our conversation recorded via long-distance line from New York. They went in there at a point when the Cuban rap movement itself was past its peak. I think the Cuban rap movement was really at its height in the early part of the 2000s. 
And by the middle of the 2000s, many rappers had left the country and musical forms such as reggaeton had started becoming much more prominent on the island. And it was at this point where there were some sort of more radical groups than had existed in the earlier part of the 2000s that were emerging. And, and USAID sort of came up with this democracy promotion program. That was not something that was anything really new. They had been trying to do things like this before, but I think that the political orientation of the rap movement prior to this period was one that rejected any involvement from uh, from the United States in these kind of programs. And so they sort of found a point at that, uh, you know, when the movement was sort of somewhat disintegrating, when people were, were moving overseas, they found that point to sort of move in and try to infiltrate some of these groups. Um, and it was a failure, ultimately. It was something that was, you know, recently exposed by the Associated Press, and it was something that never really took root among uh, among Cubans other than to get them in trouble with the authorities and create problems for people. But uh, in terms of really trying to generate anything organic, it was I think it was destined to fail, and it did. Were there some specific bigger rap groups that were involved in this um, well, there was Los Aldeanos, which is one of the main groups that's referenced in the materials. Now, they say that they had no awareness of any kind of USAID program and that they had no idea that this was going on. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very possible that this was all done very undercover and without their knowledge that, that there was this funding behind it, that there were the Creative Associates was this group that was, um, you know, being presented as a, as a front group. Um, and so this was the main group, I, I, I think, you know, alongside some other smaller ones who are not as well known. Los Aldeanos is, is a, a sort of the new generation. They're not entirely, you know, uh, hip-hop in the way that the earlier groups were to that musical form. They're sort of partly punk. There's, there's a range of influences in their music. And they're also much more critical of the government. I wouldn't say that they shared the same objectives as the USAID program to overthrow the Cuban government, but they were much more outspoken. They were much more radical. And they had a much larger following, mostly because of the era in which they arose, which was one of, you know, much... Uh, more expansive digital technology than the earlier period where Cuban rappers really only had audiences within the countries, but Los Aldeanos have a big audience outside the country through YouTube, iTunes. Too. Viva Cuba Libre! That's just one protest song from Cuban rappers. This one from the very popular Los Aldeanos. And now, more from Professor Fernandez. U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, continues to advertise for these democracy promotion programs. That's correct. And, and I think, you know, there is actually funding being given by the government, continued funding being given by the government for these programs. And I don't think it's surprising. I mean, when you hear the rhetoric that's used by President Obama and by uh, State Department officials about what this opening is going to mean and how Cuba is going to need to open up, it's going to need to democratize, it's going to need to become like the United States, when you hear the rhetoric and that is the same kind of rhetoric that the USAID is using, I don't think it's entirely surprising that they would continue to believe that something like USAID could actually do good. Oh, it, you know, it just shouldn't be, the, the, the rhetoric that's used is it just shouldn't be underground in the way that it is right now. It shouldn't be hidden. It should be more open about what it's doing, and it shouldn't trick people. But the underlying idea behind it is, is still good. I mean, that's what 
is being expressed about programs like this from um, mostly from people within the State Department and people who are associated with the program. Uh, but I think that misses the ways in which it's it is a fundamental you know meddling in the affairs of a different country and in the sovereignty of this government, in the movement itself, which is something that was always fairly organic despite its connections and ties with the Cuban government and with, you know, movements, hip-hop movements around the globe who've always been part of what nourished Cuban hip-hop. It's been something organic. It's been something that arose from the ground up and from the movement. And, uh, and there doesn't seem to be a recognition on the part of the State Department and those who operate programs like, uh, you know, the Creative Associates and the USAID program that you know, that they're sort of intervening in something that they really have no business intervening in. Some would argue that if you are promoting democracy this way in a place that has a repressive regime, then then that might give you more latitude. Uh, you, are you talking, when you say latitude, are you talking about in terms of the ability of the American government to sort of negotiate with Cuba? Is that what you mean by latitude? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, again, I think that this has to come on the terms of what the Cuban government and the Cuban people are going to uh, be willing to negotiate, be willing to concede. Uh, there's so much at stake right now in, you know, and, and as you know, soon after this whole uh, USAID program was exposed, the President Obama came out with this sort of very, very historic change in uh, announcement about uh, restoration of diplomatic relationship with Cuba. And 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 I think that that is really, it's it's, um, really key to recognize that this is not just about the United States dictating the terms on which the two countries are going to interact, but it's also, I think there are a lot of discussions and there's a lot of debate within Cuba right now on how the Cuban people themselves can have an influence in their government to try and say what, you know, what they want to happen and, and how they want that to happen. And I think the United States thinks the only way that can happen is via two-party electoral system. And that's not the way that it's happened in Cuba for a long time. And it's not to say that, you know, that Cuba's some perfect system. There are a lot of problems and there are a lot of issues in uh, the way that the government represses debate and the way that it censors musicians like hip-hop artists. And there's a lot of problems, but there is also ch there are also channels by which people are able to make their voices heard. And I think that that programs like this USAID program just don't respect that that already exists. Some might say that by supporting these rappers through USAID, then the U.S. is actually expressing its way of also fighting against that repression of free speech in Cuba. Well, I think that the problem with that view is that uh, USAID and, and Cuban rappers and Cuban artists and, and, and ordinary Cuban people hold such fundamentally different views of uh, of, of Cuba's future. And I think, you know, if you look at all of the materials on the USAID website, if you look at all of the pages of documents that were released by USAID, I mean, what's really clear on that is that the United States government wants to set up a free market economy in Cuba. They want to set up the kind of neoliberal free market economy that has been, uh, you know, opened up in many countries across the globe in, the re in recent decades. And that's something very far from what Cuban people and the Cuban government want to do. I mean, the, the, the sort of the history of uh, of the welfare, publicly provided, publicly subsidized services from education to healthcare, all of that in Cuba is something that is still valued by a lot of people, and it's just part of what they take for granted. And so I think that the, that the big gap in understanding between the um, what the U.S. government and USAID want for Cuba and what Cuban people themselves want for Cuba, 
I think just doesn't mesh. Could you tell us what the reaction, from your point of view, has been in the hip-hop community in Cuba to this opening? Well, I just um, I think it's hard to speak about a hip-hop community in Cuba because you have, on the one hand, those groups and the ones who I'm most in contact with, groups like Obsession, who are part of... Um, they're, they're, in some ways, they are... Uh, you know, part of the government agencies, they lead up the government agencies, they're very, um, you know, they have close connections with those in government and uh, have spoken out quite a lot against USAID. And, and uh, But at this point, it's a little hard to talk about a reaction from the Cuban hip-hop community just because that community doesn't exist as a unified voice in any way like it used to much more in the early part of the 2000s. Now it's so much more globalized and so much more fragmented than it used to be. Well, thank you so much. Sujatha Fernandez, the author of Close to the Edge, her latest book, and a professor at Queens College, City University of New York, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much. Thank you. The music of Los Aldeanos takes us out this week. That concludes our program on Cuba. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You could find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Gabriela Conchola and producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>